question, it's more of a statement about um, our hearts and what's working down there. So I'm going on uh, the last couple of classes where it's been a while now, but we've been talking about identity, we've been talking about how identities are shaped by experiences and upbringing, and we've been talking about identity as um, how we feel as opposed to who God says we are. So you have these conflicting things going on. And um, I ran across a quote uh, today or yesterday, uh, before we get to that, though I ended the last class period like three weeks ago talking about our identities, our, that God has created us with as man and woman, or various ways that that plays out in our lives. Um, Francis Schaeffer wrote something very interesting. He said, man is a glorious ruin. And he compared this, uh, I think it was Francis Schaeffer that went on with his thought, and he compared it to a beautiful um, castle that God has built. And it was built in perfection, it was built uh, beautifully, it was built intricately designed and reflecting his image. Now you come along, uh, you know, a thousand years later, and the thing's in a state of neglect, it's in disrepair, the walls have fallen down. Uh, but it's still, you can tell that what was there in the beginning was something that was beautiful and something that was meant to function well. So when you think of the idea that we are a glorious ruin, we fight a, so thinking back to identities now, we fight this continual battle of the, um, how would you say, the, you'd say the flesh versus the spirit, Paul calls it the old man versus the new man. And Paul actually has a number of things that he writes about this. And I want to look at some of these verses tonight as a backdrop to what we're going to talk about next. So the first one is in Ephesians 4. This is uh, in the English Standard Version. So assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Sounds pretty easy. You have the old self, take that off. You have the new self that Jesus Christ gives you, and you put that on. Then in Romans 7, Paul says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So if you look at Romans 7, you get this whole um, uh, this dichotomy of the things that I want to do as opposed to the things that I do do. And Paul's feeling the tension. And he says, Oh, wretched man, that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he goes on in chapter 8, and he says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So you again, you have Paul recognizing the tension, but he's saying you're delivered from that. Paul goes on to say in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, oh, sorry, Yes, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So take that section of verses now and compare it back to Romans 8. Paul says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But right before that, he says, O wretched man that I am. Notice he doesn't say, O wretched man that I was. So in the midst of this 
living free of condemnation, Paul's recognizing that there's still something broken about the way he's living. It's not an excuse for sin, but he's recognizing that this sin issue is going to have its say. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, driving out on 29 in Madison, and I had the three oldest children with me, and we pull up, uh, we pull out on 29, and the traffic's fairly heavy, and we come to the light out here by Sheets, and traffic did not stop quickly or anything like that, it was just a normal stopping at the red light, and I stopped, and the car beside me didn't, and goes plowing on full tilt into the vehicle in front of her, it was an older woman that was driving, uh, she was driving like a, a crossover probably or something like that halfway between an SUV and a car. Anyway, she slams into the vehicle in front of her, which was also a vehicle about the same size, which in turn goes and hits the vehicle, the truck, in front of her. So it was a three-car pileup. This happened, like, right here. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Wish I had a dash cam, you know, all of this stuff. And um, when I looked over, the car that started everything, her, she was up against the vehicle in front of her, and her wheels were spinning forward. So she hit it pretty hard. Like the whole back end of the vehicle in front of her came off the ground. Um, and it looked like she probably stomped on the gas instead of the brake. I couldn't tell exactly what happened. Anyway, so uh, the person <coughs> that was hit, so it was, this was the center vehicle, the one that was hit from behind and that went ahead and, and hit the vehicle or was driven into the vehicle in front of her, she gets out of her vehicle and... Um, I don't know how old she was, by age, maybe a little younger. And she gets out of her vehicle and looks at the, she just, she walks back to the back of her vehicle and just screams at the driver behind her. Um, I won't repeat what she said, but I could. Um, just uh, had a few things to say. So she yells at the person behind her that hit her. She opens, yanks open the rear vehicle of her car, pulls out her screaming toddler from the back seat, yells at the driver again, and then proceeds to walk off to the side of the road. And um, it didn't look like anybody was hurt badly or anything like that. But I don't know this woman, but think about, you can imagine the scenario with me. Something happens and it's like, Rah! like that. Thank you, you're awake now. And um, so who was in charge of her at that moment? The mind of Christ or the body of death? So Paul says, we have both, right? Or at least we deal with both. So who's in charge of her at that moment? Well, I think we would all probably say the body of death at that moment. If you would base everything you know of that person off of what I just told you, what would you think about her? Well, you don't actually know anything about her, do you? All you know is how she responds when things go very wrong. So for all I know, she was the local pastor's wife who was having a bad day. I want you to think about this. If I would push enough of your buttons, you would probably respond the same way. Sometimes it doesn't actually take that much pushing. But you have those moments where all of a sudden something that's inside comes bursting out before you can stop it. So I want you to think about this. Adversity, we've probably heard something like this before. Adversity, hard times build character, right? Heard something like that? 
I think that's probably true, but I think what's more true is that hard times reveal character. Because what happens when life gets difficult is what's really inside of you comes out. And if that's quality, then that's great. And if it's not, then that also is revealed during those times. Let's talk about habits for a minute. So I talked about this last. Um, some of this stuff I went over in the like December of 2021, so most of you weren't here for that. I'm going to talk about habits for a bit. I'm going to try not to get too technical, but I find this interesting. So we have this complicated, complex world that we live in. And the way we make sense of our world is by assigning two sentences in. I'm already getting more complicated than I wanted to. Okay, I'll stick with my notes. Habit forming is a coping mechanism. That is what we do to make sense of a world that is complicated. So I'll tell you what I mean by that. Do you have to think about everything you do all the time? No. How much of the time do you actually think about what you're doing? Anybody want to take a guess? Okay, you're under 25, so for y'all, most of the time you're not. We're <laughs> normal human beings. Anybody want to guess how much of your life is habit and how much of your life is conscious decision? About 40% of what you do is habitual. So that means that 40% of the decisions you made today, you didn't actually make. Your mind just told your body what to do and that's what you did. Habits allow you to focus on what you think is important while the stuff that has to get done still gets done. It's just happening in the background. Now, some of this happens naturally. So you have a child that's developing and they learn how to walk. Well, you know how old people walk now, obviously, right? They gotta think about what they're doing. Do you think about what you're doing when you're walking? No, because your mind has learned how to walk. It, it's figured out how to manage balance with your big toes and the side of your feet and the balls of your feet and things like that, where your hips are and where your shoulders are in relation to how you're walking to keep you on your feet. But for somebody that's just learning that, they have to think about all those things. Here's another way of looking at it. Um, you have, probably getting ahead of myself here. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's keep talking about habits for a minute. A couple of quotes about habit forming. An important characteristic of a habit is that it's automatic. We don't always recognize habits in our own behavior. Studies show that about 40% of people's daily activities are performed each day in almost the same situation. Habits emerge through associative learning. What that means is that when you repeat things, they become habits and they become automatic. So here's a good little rule of thumb for you. If you don't want to get good at something, don't do it. Because if you practice it, you will get good at it and it will become a habit and you're going to not think about it anymore. You're just going to do it. Another quote by Wendy Wood. We find patterns of behavior that allow us to reach goals. It brings us to the subject of goals. We repeat what works, and when actions are repeated in a stable context, we form associations between cues and responses. Here's what that looks like. So you have a, think of a habit. You have a goal. Well, what's your goal? Well, you have what you say are your goals, and then you have what are actually your goals, which often don't line up correctly, but sometimes they do. So you have a goal, you have actions that take you to the goal, and you have what we call cues, or triggers, that's another word for it, is what cues you to take the action to reach the goal. So think about it this way. Uh, here's a good analogy I heard recently from a psychology student. Uh, if you take, you wake up in the morning, 
and you make a cup of coffee. How many of you drink coffee first thing in the morning? Okay, why? So you think about psychology. What psychology is, is the study of how human thinking affects human behavior, essentially. Why do you drink a cup of coffee in the morning? Do you think about it? Is it a conscious decision you have to make? Sort of. But think about it this way. You wake up in the morning and it's six o'clock and you're going in for your early. You're tired because you didn't get enough sleep last night. And so you want to have energy today. That's your goal. So your cue is that you're tired. Your action is that you're going to drink a cup of coffee. The result or the goal is set so that you have energy to have a good day. Does that make sense? So that's just one thing. We have things like this in our lives all of the time that are affecting the way we operate. So you have, um, so here's another great way of thinking about it. This is the iceberg here. Um, you have all sorts of things down here. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I like talking about that. Um, so you have your goals. Let me show you what this might look like, for example. Let's see if I can find a marker that works. That's not it. Um, so you have goals, or priorities would be another way of putting it, but we'll say goals for now. So if I would ask you what your goals are in life, or what some of your goals are in life, you could tell me some things. You don't have to tell me them now, but you have goals. Okay, so you have goals, you have your stated priorities. Do you always live up to your priorities? Why not? You said so. You said that this is a priority in life. What that tells me is that you don't just have stated priorities. You also have implicit, uh, I'm gonna just use that word. You also have your implicit priorities and when push comes to shove, your implicit priorities almost always win. So you, the reason for that is because our implicit priorities are wrapped up in our habits. So you can say that um, maybe you're like 500 pounds overweight. And you can say that I want to lose weight. That's my stated goal. But when it comes down to it, you can't stop eating. Why not? It's because, let's say, we're just going to follow this analogy down the rabbit hole a little bit. Let's say that you have an eating disorder uh, and eating junk food is your way of numbing pain. Because we do things like that to numb pain. So you have a stated goal that I'd like to lose weight. But your body is telling you that actually your higher priority is to not feel pain. And the way I'm going to not feel pain is I'm going to eat pizza and drink Mountain Dew. And so when push comes to shove, the implicit goal, the unstated goal, usually the one that's not understood, is winning out because it actually ranks higher on the priority system. Me protecting myself is more important than me getting some of these other things that I think I want in the moment. And so you have, uh, with the iceberg model, for example, you have what's seen on the surface, but you have all of these other things underneath that are driving the behaviors that we see on top. Okay, here's why stated goals don't work or at least they don't work very well. It's because willpower is a limited resource. So what happens when we set goals on New Year's, which, how many of you have, how many of you this past New Year's set New Year's resolutions? Any of you? You're so young. I did, and I'm keeping, I've managed to keep one of them so far. Most uh, New Year's resolutions don't last past eight weeks. By far, the majority of them won't last past about four weeks. Did you know that gym memberships go up in January? 
<laughs> yeah, they do. They actually do. Because people decide they're going, this is the year they're going to lose weight. And so they spend lots of money on gym membership that they never use. Why? Because four weeks later, they're tired of it. So willpower is a limited resource. And when we run out of willpower, our habits kick back in. That's why it's so hard to break them. So how do we form habits? Here's how our brains work. Now, I'm going to really dumb this down, A, because I don't understand it, and B, because I have to dumb it down to make any sense of it. So you have your prefrontal cortex right here. This is the front part of your brain. If you're looking at it in evolutionary <coughs> terms, they would say that this is the part of the brain that developed last. And what they mean by that is that this is something that separates human beings from a lot of other animals, is that we have a prefrontal cortex. You also have a prefrontal cortex, but yours has not finished developing yet, unless you are over the age of 25. And so what your prefrontal cortex is in charge of is it's responsible for conscious decision-making. One of the reasons you have a prefrontal cortex is, set, is so that your thoughts die instead of you. Here's what I mean by that. Imagine if you never thought about anything that you did. Would you still be living? Maybe, right? So when I was 18, I uh, went with my sister to McDonald's late at night one night without my parents knowing about it, I think. No, I'm pretty sure they were in bed. Anyway, and um, we got this stretch of road um, that's only about a half mile long, barely even that. And it's like one of the only straight stretches on our road. It's called Doogie Stretch. And uh, I had a decently fast car back then. And so when we came home, it's late at night, we got deer all over the place. And I was doing about 80 when I rounded the corner. And I governed my car at about 105 going down this stretch. I can tell you why I did it. It's because I didn't think about the consequences. Because now when I get the itch to like stomp on the gas, there's this fully formed and developed little part of my brain in the front called my prefrontal cortex that tells me this is what might happen if you do that. But that's what that prefrontal cortex is for, is so that you can have an idea and you can think about, okay, what's going to happen if I do this? Oh, A, B, and C are all likely scenarios. None of them are ones that I like, and so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. It's called forward thinking, or it's called uh, linking the consequences of your actions with what you actually do. That's what your prefrontal cortex is for. Well, you imagine when you're going through life and you're learning new things, your prefrontal cortex comes into play. But your prefrontal cortex also works with something called your basal ganglia, which is right here. And what your basal ganglia is responsible for is to figure out, it works in connection with your prefrontal cortex to figure out what you should do and then implement that in the rest of your brain. So in other words, you decide to do something, your basal ganglia and your prefrontal cortex work together to make that actually happen. Now, what happens is when you're developing a habit, for example, I'll give you an example of how this works. So you have a person, this is actually a skull, you have two hemispheres of the brain, here we'll just go like this, you have the right hemisphere over here, which is responsible for, um, essentially it's responsible for the things that you don't know. So art, music, poetry, those things tend to come from the right side of your brain. Left side of the brain is centered around things that you know. In other words, so this is the Republican, this is the Democrat. You have the merciful, uh, <laughs> fine with chaos part of your brain, and then you have the rigid, this is what we know and how we operate 
part of your brain. It's really interesting because you can do brain scans when you have somebody that's learning how to play the piano, for example, or you're learning how to play a new piece. Your left side of your brain is doing most of the work. Why? Because it's, sorry, your, the right side of your brain is doing most of the work because it's figuring out something that it doesn't understand. And as you learn to play that piece or as you learn to type on your computer, for example, that becomes ingrained and the movement switches over to the left side of your brain where it's, it's responsible for things that you know. So essentially the brain works together to figure out what you should do. So anyway, when you have a habit forming, you have your prefrontal cortex and your basal ganglia working together to figure out what should happen. Once they get that system figured out, it goes into what's called the, the sensory motor loop, and it's a, different, it's a number of different parts of the brain that are all firing together, and what they're doing is they're automating behavior based on certain cues. Here's a little bit how some of that might work. I'm just giving you this example. So you have a pattern, this is really cool. On your brain stem is, the, is marked the shape of a snake. It's not there in, it's not there in uh, real life. But when you see a snake, you jump without thinking about it. At least normal people do. You know why? Because that signal gets sent to your brain stem, the brain stem recognizes it, sends it right back down into your legs, and you jump. You didn't think about it, it didn't go up through your circuits, none of that, you just jumped. Because that's pre-programmed into your brain. We have other things that happen in our minds. Habits, for example, like eating ice cream for bedtime snack, which we don't do that at my house very often, but you ingrain that habit and then your body's telling you every night at 9.30, this is what's supposed to happen. Well, you can think about that's very handy. You get up in the morning, you don't have to tell your feet how to walk when you get out of bed. They just walk. You don't have to decide, am I going to take a shower or not this morning? Do you? You just take a shower because it's habit, because those things have become unthinking parts of your day, because you know this is how you do, you wake up, you go through your day, whatever, when the lunch bell rings, you come out, you don't have to think about it, because it's habit. That's all very nice and handy, except for the habits that I don't like. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you further. Think of your ha think of habits, this is, this is how I heard it explained by psychologists, Think of a habit as a little machine that sets up shop inside of your brain. That's, so you have this thing that you're doing, whether it's a good habit or a bad habit. It sets, it's a little machine, sets up shop inside your brain. It has the ability to promote the behavior that it wants and to actively suppress the other parts of your brain that might try to think about what you're doing to figure out if this is a bad thing or not. So it promotes the behavior that it wants. It actively suppresses the parts of the brain that might try to uh, to counteract what it's doing. And the only way to conquer that is to build a little wall around it in your mind. You can't actually uh, get rid of it. It's there, but you can build a wall around it, usually by forming another habit that's newer and stronger. What happens is, when you get under stress, all the little walls start going back down again. And they start with the newest habits and work their way back to the most basic basing things that you have. Which is why, for example, you can have a smoker that quits smoking 10 years later, they pick up a cigarette one day, and two days later they're back to the day. So stress 
knocks down all the little walls or anxiety or other things that, that uh, can go along with that and takes you right back to where you were. It's not to say that it's hopeless, it's just that it's difficult. So let's think about how all of that stuff for a moment. I say that to say this. <coughs> Suppose you were the woman in the car that day at the accident. Or I'm sure you can think of a situation in your life, maybe not so long ago, where you lost control <coughs> and something came out that you didn't want other people to see. The walls came down, let's say. Something that was inside jumped out before you could hold it back. What are our natural tendencies when the things that we don't reveal, the things that we don't want revealed come to light? <clears throat> Here's another way of asking the question. <clears throat> what do you feel when you expose yourself or the wrong thing comes out before you can stop it? Do you know what I'm talking about? What do you feel when that happens? You feel shame. How do we respond to shame? I'll read a story for you. Genesis 3. I want you to listen to this. I guess you don't really have a choice. You're sitting here. You have to listen to it. Genesis 3 beginning to read in verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee, that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? The woman said, The serpent beguiled me. And I did eat. There's so much more to this story than just Adam and Eve doing something they shouldn't have. They realized their vulnerability. So I've talked about this, I guess most of you weren't here for my Genesis classes. But I've talked about this back when I was going through the book of Genesis, how that this really doesn't have anything to do with nakedness. It has everything to do with vulnerability. Adam and Eve sinned, and the first thing they discovered is that they were vulnerable. And they didn't like it. So this could have gone one of two ways. So they feel shame. Obviously they felt shame because they tried to hide themselves. So they felt shame. What are we supposed to do, or what do we as human beings do when we feel shame? And the reason we're feeling shame again is because something was exposed that we don't want someone else to see. What do we do when we feel shame? We think about how the experience in the Garden of Eden could have gone differently if, it, if instead of running from the light, Adam and Eve would have gone back to God. So that's the first thing they could have done. Instead of running and hiding their vulnerability, they could have gone to God and said, recognized, we messed up, there's nothing we can do to fix this, but here we are. That's not what we do, is it? What do we do, how do we respond to shame? 
shame can drive us to the light. I think most often we hide from the light in the hopes that we'll never be found out. Quoting Dan Allender in The Wounded Heart, exposure more often than not leads to shame. The natural response of an autonomous or an independent and self-reliant heart is to hide behind fig leaves or any convenient bush. If that does not work and we are discovered again, we will resort to vicious condemnation of the creator or his creation. As children of Adam and Eve, we bear not only their likeness to God as image bearers, but also their desire to be autonomous and their propensity to hide, blame, and attack when caught. As a result of the fall, we despise standing vulnerable before God and others. Therefore, we find countless ways to flee his presence and avoid being seen. We don't like exposure to light when we know we're vulnerable. So what is shame? I can give you the definitions that I came up with, and the reason I came up with them is because I understand them and feel them. Shame, a feeling of black dread over what I've done or what has happened to me. Fear of what others will think of me if I let them see too much or if I mess up in front of them. Despair and condemnation. Shame is a powerful thing. I spent most of my 20s trying to figure out what was going on in my life and why I was feeling a certain way about something that I had done. Or, yeah, about a situation that I was really, had a lot of regrets about. And one day I just, I was, it was after we were married, obviously. This was probably 10 years down the road from what it had happened. And I was sitting in, I remember sitting on the couch one night, Priya was probably putting Kaidi bed, so this was a while back. And I was just like, God, what is it? Like, why does this keep bothering me? Like, what's going on? And the word that came to my mind was shame. And I finally was able to put a finger on what I was feeling. That I was feeling shame about the situation. It hasn't necessarily gone away, but at least I know that it exists. So you have two kinds of shame. We have legitimate shame. And there is legitimate times to be ashamed. If you look at what God says in Scripture, we'll get to this in a minute. Legitimate shame is what we feel in response to sin. We should feel inadequate, ashamed, vulnerable when it comes to our sin. What about illegitimate shame? Illegitimate shame is when we feel that our dignity has been wounded. I want you to think about how that might work out. So if I would trip and fall in front of you, I actually would probably think that was funny uh, because it would take a lot for me to feel embarrassed in front of you guys. Uh, but let's say you were at your nursing student graduation and um, you're walking across the stage and you catch your you know, shoe on the hem of your dress and this sprawling. Would you feel ashamed, Krista? Would you feel shame? Now, let's take that rabbit a little further. Well, I'm not allowed to take it a little further tonight. No, we're going to get there later. That's the kind of shame that's not legitimate. Why? It's okay to be embarrassed 
but our identity is not wrapped up in what other people think of us. And oftentimes when we're embarrassed or when we're ashamed, it's not because we've messed up in the eyes of God. It's because we feel that we made ourselves fooled in front of somebody else. Our dignity has been wounded. We're going to look at that some more here in a little bit. It's losing face in the eyes of our peers instead of losing face before God. So what does the Bible say about shame? 2 Corinthians 7.10 For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So shame can take us one of two directions. I think, I think shame is another, way, another word that you could put here in 2 Corinthians. Shame can take us two directions. Good shame leads to life. Guilt, condemnation, you can put all of those things in the same bucket. Because I, I have people in my life that struggle with really oversensitive consciences. And here's something that I tell them. If you are truly feeling guilty about something and that guilt is from God, he always offers a way of escape. Why? Because God doesn't waste guilt. When we sin and we feel guilty about it, if that is from God, God <coughs> offers a way of repentance to the place that brings us to life. But you look at what God, well, look at what Satan, look at how Satan wants to use guilt. Satan wants to use shame and guilt and take it, use it to drag you down and never let you go. Illegitimate versus God-given. The sorrow that comes from God leads to repentance without looking back. It leads to salvation. So what do we do with shame? Let's tie guilt. Let's tie shame and guilt together for a minute. What are some of the things that you might feel guilty about during a day's time? Like, not the big, nasty sins, but just like the, the normal, everyday kind. Like when we become angry, or when we fail in some area that we believe to be sin, or when we don't do as much as we think we should, or we think we have wrong motives, or you, you name it. Whatever, whatever it is that you struggle with, what do you do when you, uh, when you mess up? shame. What about contempt? So think about it this way for a moment. <clears throat> I mess up. We usually respond one of two ways. We're ashamed. We don't like feeling ashamed. So my internal response is, Nate, you are such an idiot. You should have known better. You should have better control of yourself. You shouldn't do that. Self-contempt. Or we lash out at those around us and we say, if they would have done this or if they would have treated me like this or if they would have made me feel this way, I wouldn't have responded like that. It's their fault. So you think back to Adam and Eve in the garden again. Same thing. When we're confronted with light, our natural tendency is to blame, condemn, and pass the buck. And shame almost always leads to contempt. Either contempt of myself for not being good enough or contempt at other people for hurting me. The problem with those responses is that in either one of them, we're running from the light. Psalm 90, verse eight. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So when that thing, whatever it is, comes jumping out and you weren't aware that it was going to happen right then and you can't hold it back, that wasn't a surprise to God. So let's think back to our friend at the minivan, or at the, uh, the traffic, traffic accident for a moment. So I was really ashamed. That shame word. I felt a lot of shame over what I saw. And it wasn't because I was ashamed for her. 
I was ashamed because I know that those same reactions live right here. That's what bothered me about that. Because I saw somebody acting that out and I recognized that that same spirit lives inside my heart. I might do a better job of keeping you from seeing them. I'm seeing it. But let's think about it this way. My children misbehave in public. Let's, let's, let's follow this. Let's see how I can do this. I was thinking about this, trying to think through this earlier today. And let's see if we can manage to put it on the whiteboard. So my children misbehave in church, which might occasionally happen. So we have um, bad behavior from my child up here. What might you feel as a result of your child's bad behavior? What emotions? Anybody want to take a guess? Embarrassment. Embarrassment, okay. How might that be shown? How about anger? Let's go with that. So what came out on the surface was anger. So that's at the top. Now maybe that presents itself in various ways. Maybe I just sat there in my church bench and seeds quietly to myself. Maybe I, you know, gave a good pinch, or maybe I, you know, did something else that uh, I felt was a warranted response. But in either case, anger was the initial result. Is anger the problem? You ever see people with anger issues? So when I was growing up as a kid in Lancaster, uh, we lived in town, and our neighbor guy, uh, his name was Paul, two, two houses down, had, they had a big family, we hung out with his kids a lot, but he would drink, and he had a serious anger problem. And I remember waking up, I remember laying in my bed at night and hearing him yell and break stuff uh, from just up the street. His wife had the good sense to leave him at some point. But uh, did Paul have an anger problem? No, I don't think he did. That's how his problems came to the surface. But anger wasn't really the issue. So let's go deeper. Anger was my response to, Johnny, you nailed it, shame. Okay, so let's think about the shame part of that for a moment. Legitimate or illegitimate shame? When my children act like children, and I'm embarrassed by their behavior. Now there's definitely some overlap as far as legitimate and illegitimate shame there. But if I have to keep my kids under control because I'm afraid of what you'll think of me, and they act up. Is that legitimate or illegitimate shame? Who's wounded? It's me, right? It's my dignity. And I'm not real happy about having my dignity wounded in front of other people. I'm not real happy about it looking like I'm not in control. So let's think about this. Anger was my response to shame, but shame actually isn't the problem either, is it? Shame is also the result of something else. So let's think about it this way. I feel shame when it becomes obvious to those around me that I'm not in control. Which is why, by the way, if, if I struggle with anger, for example, and I, um, you know, get blocked by somebody in a, in a good game and I grab the ball and throw it across the court in a fit of rage, I'm ashamed. I should hopefully be ashamed, at least, of what I've done. 
yes, some legitimate shame probably, but I'm also really ashamed that you saw me lose control. Because I don't want to be the guy that loses control. That's a dignity issue again. So let's take that a little deeper now. So you have anger, being driven by shame, being driven by the need to be in control. So anger, by the way, is a great coping mechanism. You know why? Because if you feel out of control, if you get angry, you might just get control back. That's why it's so effective. I can, uh, if my kids, for example, are misbehaving and I get up in their face and I run at them and they shape up, what did I do? I just manipulated them using my anger. Let's go deeper. Anger, shame, control. Another way of saying control is my own way or autonomy. Or that takes us right back to the sin in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve said, I think I'll have things my way instead of having things God's way. So when you look all the way down at the root, you have this issue of who is going to be in control. God or me. And if it's God, then I'm able to accept, well, at least to a greater extent, I'm able to accept the things that happen to me because I don't have to be in control. My identity is not at stake because my identity is wrapped up in God and the anger doesn't have to exist because there's no longer any reason for it. Most of the time, I would say, in our lives, we spend a lot of energy trying to manage what we see on the surface as opposed to getting down to the underlying issues, often which find themselves up in my trust in God or my trust in the idols that I've set up in my lives, in my life. So what do we do with our shame? One of the lies we believe is that shame is going to keep us from being accepted. But I want you to think about something this way. Shame is meant to drive us to God with our broken pieces so that he can bring healing to them. Most of the time what we do with them is we try to hold on to them ourselves and to hang on and say, no, I'm going to take care of this my way. When you look at, I'll close with one more illustration. I've talked about this before. When you look at the tabernacle that God had set up in the middle of the camp of Israel, they had all of this stuff where God dwelt and everything that they had to do just right. And then because the children of Israel were sinful, they had to build a wall around the tabernacle. Because God said, you all aren't, uh, you're in no condition to come to me and to dwell in my presence because of your sin. And so we, that's often where we find ourselves in it. We find ourselves on the outside of the camp, wishing that we could get in and have this communion with God. And yet we feel like we can't because we've got these things in our lives. And yet God told the children of Israel what to do with their sin. And he said, every morning and evening, you're going to come and you're going to bring your sin offering. You're going to kill it at the door of the tabernacle, and you're going to bring that blood in all the way in to where God dwelt. That represented your sin, and you're going to give it to me. So sin separates us from God, and God said, the thing that I want you to do with your sin is to bring it into my presence. 
and let me heal it. And our shame and our control, all of these things that we see on the surface often come down to the fact that we have a hard time believing that God is actually big enough to handle what we carry. Pick up there again next week. Have a good evening. Mm-hmm.